Welcome to Sliding Doors, the podcast that delves into the decisions and moments that shape our lives. I am Jenny Becker, and throughout my life, career, and relationships, I've always been fascinated with the notion that everything happens for a reason, alongside my love for the 90s movie classic, Sliding Doors. Have you ever really thought about those moments that shaped your life? Those decisions that could have gone either way in the opportunities presented to you? What if you had taken that job? or told that person in high school how much you liked them. Each episode, I will talk to some amazing people from all walks of life and chat about their sliding doors moments. We will reflect on how a decisional moment changed the course of their lives and how things might have looked if they had never happened. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. My guest today is Nick Littlehales. Nick is an international elite sports sleep coach and is the founder of the game-changing R90 human recovery performance technique and is probably best known as the author of the number one bestseller, Sleep. With 35 years experience within the sleeping product industry, his unique, passionate and proven approach is endorsed by some of the world's leading sports professionals and businesses. With clients such as Sir Chris Hoy, Team Sky's record-breaking cyclists, Olympic athletes, Manchester United and Real Madrid, but to name a few. A former aspiring golfer, Nick moved on to become the International Sales and Marketing Director of Slumberland where an idea became a reality when he wrote to Sir Alex Ferguson about his theory and ideas around sleep and recovery. Fast forward some years and Nick is now recognised as the world's first and leading elite sports sleep coach and regarded as a leading human recovery innovator, as well as being the former chairman of the UK Sleep Council. His groundbreaking number one best-selling book, Sleep, sets out to debunk common sleep myths as well as educating the reader on his revolutionary R90 human recovery technique. Based on his proven research and experience, his simple and effective strategy is universal to everyone and changes the way we see rest and sleep. 
He's changed the lives of so many people and I'm honoured to have him with me today on Sliding Doors. Welcome to the podcast, Nick. Thank you very much, Jerry. What an amazing introduction. Well, you've had an amazing career in life so far. So for those people that don't know what an elite sports sleep coach is, can you explain a bit more about what you do, what your nine to five is and what your actual job is? <laughs> well, hopefully I get a good night's sleep. I think it was just um, just over that whole career path which you just introduced, it was always about trying to redefine this approach. Um, I think there's loads of myths and misunderstandings, you know, get your eight hours, if not, you're going to die. And when you look at all the sort of things that have gone with our occupational challenges and where we go and everything else, it just seemed to be a, just a mess. Um, so I just tried to redefine that. So the elite sports sleep coach just came about because I happened to have fell into the world of sport a couple of decades ago. Um, I'd sort of given up on my industry in some respects because of all those things we just described. And I just thought, maybe there's another way of doing this. Along that particular route, um, I fell into elite sport. I got given the title as being a sleep coach, you know, coach in sport, sleep. What was I doing? Tucking people up, reading bedtime stories, <laughs> you know, whatever it was. Nobody really understood it. I don't think they do now. And so what do I do? I wake up every day. Uh, I engage with high achievers. It's not just elite sport. Um, and I just try to find that little way that they can get from A to B. Yeah, and I actually did Google if there are any other elite sports sleep coaches, and I think you may be the only one in the world. <laughs> well, if you make your own title up, maybe that's what you are. There you go. And actually... I've been such a fan of yours for a really long time. About four years ago, one of my really good friends bought me your book, Sleep, um, mainly just because, you know, I'm always interested in learning new theories. I like meditating. Um, and I was just so fascinated by your whole theory and approach to, as you say, those easy methods that we can all use um, to help sleep better. And it's really helped me. And Yes, you are an elite sports sleep coach, but your book really, you know, speaks to everybody. It's universal. It, it's not just for people in the sports industry. It's for anybody to learn better techniques to sleep better. Um, what was it that drove you to write the book in the first place? I didn't actually want to write the book, to be honest, Jen. Um, I had no interest in being a publisher or an author or whatever that might be. I just got asked by a very high-profile publishing house called Penguin Random Hand. We all know that little penguin on loads of places. They just rang me up and said, we want a different take on some of the health pillars. And you seem to have a different take on it. So they, they'd researched me like mad, uh, as you do. Um, they'd looked into it in every single way, and they thought maybe my approach would be relevant to be published. So they asked me to write a book. Um, I felt very overwhelmed by that, to be honest. Uh, yeah, I bet. I also thought that maybe that could be the end of my career. Um, and it was the opposite. <laughs> thank you. But um, so I just went, okay. They pursued me like mad. Um, they asked me loads and loads of questions. And in the end, I just said, fine, we'll do it. Um, and along that, it took about two years. Jen. Wow, really? That's such a long time. Yeah, because it, 
it asks such a lot of questions about uh, going back into the past of how the sort of r technique, which you mentioned, how all that sort of developed. And along the route, you weren't developing a technique, you weren't developing a new thing. Uh, You're making things up in some respect. But um, so it was a really crazy journey to be asked to write a book and get involved with that whole process. But, uh, you know, I'm, I'm in some respects, I'm really pleased that they called me. Yeah, I bet. And it's so nice to know that someone saw what you did and wanted like the world to know more about it. I mean, third eye. yeah, the third eye. I'm, I'm so one of those people though, that gets into bed. And if I've got a really important meeting the next day or something that I feel like I need a good amount of sleep for, I get into bed and I'm like, I need my eight hours. And then I'm watching the clock and the clock's going by and I'm not sleeping. And then you get into this whole ridiculous cycle and your R90 theory just really, as I said, it's simply just makes you understand a different approach to how we can sleep and get enough sleep in order to perform and produce what we need to. How did you come up with the R90 theory? It was a period of time I was in my mid-40s. I was, you know, moving away from my international sales and marketing career and moving off into something else. I don't know, surfboarding in Australia, I don't know. Um, But... There was one little thing when I started to get involved with sport. It happened to be Manchester United, a local football club, to where my office, UK office was in, yeah, in the UK. And uh, a few things happened, and I ended up in conversations with them. So there's one thing I always learned, that uh, working with the clinical professors and everything else, they always measured sleep in 90-minute cycles. I don't know why, but they just did. And it's all about the stages and the rhythms and patterns of sleep and all that sort of stuff, and brainwave patterns, frontal lobe, all this sort of stuff. But they always looked at it in 90-minute cycles. So when I was sort of being asked to, how do you redefine that in the world of sport, with a bunch of young athletes, male-dominated at that time, just thought, how can I change their perception of this? So five 90-minute cycles is 7.5 hours. That's your eight hours. Yeah. Now we think in cycles. I always knew that sleep and circadian rhythms and that natural harmony about bodily functions in the brain and this, pineal glands and light and all sorts, all came together in a wonderful relationship in 90-minute cycles. So 90-minute cycles is the length of a football game. It is. With a little gap. And why do we have this little gap? It's a come off the field, hydrate, fuel up, take a squeeze of the orange, a magic sponge, with a moment in time, managers re-strategize, and then we go out and do it again. So it's kind of like it put a, a sort of new age perspective on it. But not from a making up. It came from a nice place. So suddenly the, you know, the people I was working with started thinking about cycles. Uh, and it started a, a sort of mindset, a thinking process about we sleep in cycles. Yeah. We don't just sleep eight hours. And I think that's where it sort of started and everything else sort of built around it. No, and I love that. And it's, you know, as you said, not to laugh, but it is just a simple perspective of looking at cycles. And again, you related it to the sports world that you worked in. Um, 
And it's brilliant. And for anyone that hasn't read the book, I would really recommend you go and buy it because it will change the way you see sleep and recovery. Um, And Nick has actually given me his sliding doors moments before this chat. But before we go into that, um, Nick, I wanted to ask you, what are your kind of thoughts and beliefs around fate and the concept that everything happens for a reason. I know you've had a lot of moments in your career where when you reflect back, you know, you can say that happened because that happened. But what what are kind of your thoughts and theories around um, everything happens for a reason? It's such a big question, Jenny. I think the more years you put underneath you, the more time you have to reflect on those things. Um, maybe... Lots of things were happening that um, may have been a journey in front of me that I wasn't aware of. Um, but I think maybe it's, it's only the time when you can reflect on is where do the dots join up? Yeah. Um, so I, I'm not necessarily convinced it's fate. I just think as long as you've got ideas, as long as you've got creative thoughts, as long as you've got, you know, ambitions and uh, and dreams and all sorts of things going on in your world, then that will all formulate itself into some sort of journey. And you can always reflect on that. Maybe that happened because of this. Maybe that happened because of that. So I'm, I'm not totally convinced it's fate. But I do believe that every decision you make creates a reason and outcome. Definitely. And that's what and we... if that's what fate means, then yeah. that's what fate means. And it's what we're trying to delve into in the podcast is really, you know, as you say, you may not know that a decision that you make at some time leads you on your path, but when you can reflect back, you can connect the dots sometimes and it may not be fate, but you know that that happened because that happened. And as you said, you can join the dots and that's why I'm so excited to chat to you because I think there's a lot of sliding doors, sliding doors and dot joining for you. Um, and your first moment, and thank you for being so open and vulnerable by um, saying this, but the sudden passing of your father when you were 17, um, it's such a personal tragedy to go through at such a young age. Um, how did this really affect you and kind of where you were at when you were 17 and that happening? I think at the time, Jenny, um, there, there was nothing tangible to to latch on to. But as you look back at it, I was, I was just about to go on a, a major holiday with some friends who were going to travel into Europe, the backpacking thing and all that sort of stuff. And my mother and father sat me down and go, eh, you know, should we let you go? And all that sort of era. Parent worry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's like my first journey away from the home. Um, and I, I was brought up in a very sort of conservative, you know, middle-class environment. And going abroad, nah. So me and my friends, we're all going to go off on this challenge. We're not prepared. We're not even emotionally prepared, not even, you know, experienced to do this sort of thing. But my dad said to me, go. Uh, before we even went, um, he'd spent all years in, uh, you know, get your career, work for your company, da da da, pensions and all that. Just, that's what he followed. So he was in his 65th year, about yeah. to go into retirement, and he'd done everything else he'd done. 
And this was his moment in time, you know, retirement. And suddenly he um, found, you know, he got a tumor on his brain. And he was in hospital and they were about to operate and stuff like that. And I was about to go off on this trip to Europe. And he said to me, go. Really? Go. And I took the trust in him at that time, which was great. And I went off on the trip, um, which is a long old story. But then I got this, I phoned home from the south of France. We're all mucking around in tents and stuff like that. My dad passed away. So I traveled all the way back, trains and all sorts of stuff to get back to his funeral. And it was just in a very small window that uh, my dad believed he was going to get through it. Um, I had no idea of what he was talking about or tumors and surgery and stuff like that. But um, when I asked, should I stay? He said, go. Are you glad that you did go? I think I'm glad I went because at that moment in time, nothing mattered. You know, he, he didn't know what was going on. He was an engineer. He knew everything about everything. But he didn't know at that time why this tumour suddenly appeared. It's been growing for years and years and years, but he didn't even know anything about it. He didn't know that. He didn't know what the outcome was. He didn't know anything about anything. And neither did I. So I think yeah. he just said, well, go. Uh, I'll either be here when you get back or you won't be. And I think if I'd have stayed, maybe I wouldn't have experienced some other things. But, yeah. you know, that's all. <clears throat> that, uh, but I think it was just a, a moment in time that none of the family had any idea of what was going on. Yeah, and it is a really hard situation. And I know we've previously spoken about um, your dad and his job and how you feel like there's definitely a part of him ingrained in you. Um, Do you want to explain a little bit about what your dad did? Because he had such a brilliant um, career. I was just a simple engineer working for a company. Um, They were called Lucas in the West Midlands. Maybe some people will know about that. He was a simple engineer. And uh, he was challenged to uh, try and make a difference between how cars go faster or slower. And he was the, um, one of the engineers who were challenged at Lucas at the time, they were big in sport, to create what is now known as PI, petrol injection. Amazing. And just a simple guy, you know. Used to come home every weekend with cars and stuff and cylinders everywhere and trying to find ways of getting this petrol into this piston to create more energy and stuff like that. And then eventually him and his colleagues cracked it. But it was always like I was in the garage at weekends. Coming home with his stuff and I can't work out how to get this in here. And it, uh, then we cut the grass, then we do this, then we make some wine and beer because he loved making stuff. And all that so good. And we just go back and come like, I had no idea what he was doing. But then eventually, um, he started traveling all around the world, uh, which was completely crazy. You know? 
Uh, it's so our, great. And it's that, it's that determination to try and always find a solution to make something work. Yeah, I think he just, he just, um, he knew there was a better way of doing it. Uh, yeah. In his own little world as an employed person with his pension and everything else, he knew there was something there to find. And, and eventually he did it. Yeah. Um, then we started getting postcards from Lotus, and Brabham, and Jackie Stewart, and you know all sorts of stuff going on. Our cars are going faster. He was traveling all around the world and doing amazing things in, in what's called Lewis Hamilton's world of Spain. And it's very, I mean, it's not to go too much into what we're going to discuss in a bit, but it's very similar to you and kind of, right. you know, well, in the sense that, you know, we, you, you don't do what you do because you want to become something big and famous. I know that you're, you know, the crux of what you do is really because you believe in what you're doing and you want to help people and you, you're always trying to find, you know, the solutions for things to be better. Um, and I mean, I said in the introduction that you actually used to be a golfer. Um, did you know you wanted to be a golfer when you were 17? Like, how did you start to get into, one, you know, wanting to become a professional golfer? Golf back in the late, you know, early 80s was a completely different sport. Um, it was just, I was always trying to achieve a sport, an individual drive, um, an independent, lonely place that can be. So whether it's cricket, football, this, pole jumping, shot putting, uh, marathon running, whatever it was, I was just in it all over the place. But it just so happened that um, because I kind of not necessarily failed at those things, um, there was one thing that seemed to connect, and it was a local golf club uh, to where I lived. Um, it's a very high-profile golf club. Um, had all the sort of gender problems of no women allowed and all this sort of stuff. And, I still I find that ridiculous with golf ah. clubs. But, um, you know, the, the professional at the time said, you've got a talent somewhere. And I think what it was, it was not about golf. I think it was about uh, dedication, independence. It was about drive. It's about enthusiasm. It's about you've got a talent. Can you improve it? Can you work hard at that and improve it even better? The club I worked for had King George and all sorts of stuff, and Dennis Thatcher. We had all sorts of people coming to the club because it was so famous. But he, I think what he did is connect up the fact that I could multitask across a number of areas. Right? Yeah. So I could not only clean the toilets, um, and clean the locker room. Always a good skill to have. I could repair the clubs. I could coach the individuals. I could talk to CEOs at 17 years old. I could work with people. I used to wander Dennis Thatcher around the golf course showing him where to go. And he was married to a famous prime minister. It was just, I think all those things came together that you have a lot of tools not necessarily educated and defined, but you have a lot of tools that you can use. Yeah, and it's it's like that with a lot of things in life. And it's it's actually a really nice way to put it that, you know, it was about someone seeing not just the golf professional in you, but all those other things that make up a golf professional. And 
Leading on to your second sliding doors moment. So deciding to get married at the age of 24 and changing my career path. So do you want to kind of just explain a bit about how this came about? So you get to 24, you've been a professional golfer and what made you kind of decide to get married and change your career path? Yeah, just love. That's so nice. You know, I, I met a young lady at my local disco um, because my mate wanted to go out with her. So he asked me to ask her, you know, that whole classic thing. Um, we came good friends. We went through lots of, it was like 15, 16. Um, but we just realized we were in love. And so we've done loads of things, you know, I'm trying to be a sports person or golfer and this. Um, she hated golf. You know, her father played golf and everything else. She just hated it. She was just like, you know, da da da. And then just, you know, one day I just thought, well, that's that's me. I can't ignore it. I love her. And so I just rang her up from a tournament one day and just said, um, Let's get married. So we did. We did the white wedding and all that sort of stuff. And we got together and we moved on from there. But it, it, I think that sort of, at that particular point, I realised that I was not going to be a professional sports person. Mm-hmm. Okay? That there was another, there was something else that's going to happen. So... I completely jumped into the furniture industry, which had nothing to do with sport or anything else, but it was more to do with about building a family. We, so we've been together since we were 15, 24. 24 sounds young, but it's a good old period being together. So we just thought, well, let's get on with it and see where it goes. But I fell into a furniture industry. I had no interest in whatsoever. Not in this light. Just It was just... Uh, a way to create a family, to create something else. And so probably if you wanted to eyeglass on my life at that particular moment, I was lost being done. Yeah. And I guess it's, you know, it's that crossroads of, you know, thinking about you being at the tournament, being a bit like, I don't want to go down this path anymore. Like, I love this girl. I want to get married. And, you know, sometimes you've got to make the decision of like, do you need to start providing for a family and kind of shifting your mindset and thinking about marriage and children? And I mean, how did you get the job in the sleep industry? Were you always interested in sleep or, you know, was it just more that you really felt like you needed to start providing a steady income and being kind of that family um, support? No, Jelly, it was, it was nothing more than uh, when I when I asked when I offered to get married, and she said yes, immediately at that point, I got involved with her family. And it was nothing more than building a family. And so I just left school immediately at that particular point. There was a period of time when we tried to hang on to it with our fingernails and stuff like that, but principally I left it. So I just found myself in an industry where I knew nothing about anything. It wasn't even any interest to me. Uh, but what it did do is uh, create a home and a family environment, yeah. which was great. Um, I think my father passing away when I was 17 and 
we lost those Christmases and we lost those family environments and all that stuff. His mum just looking after us. And it was just like a, a nice, well, let's rebuild that moment time. So build the family again. So I just found myself wandering around in the sleep industry for no other reason than uh, that it was just putting food on the table for the kids. Yeah, and I love that. And the, how did that then lead to you becoming um, the kind of international director role that you were? Like, how did you kind of climb up the ladder? Those sliding doors moments. When you, you look back at it, I just went, so, this is good. Yeah. But I've got to make use of this because this is where I am. I'm a bed salesman in a car. So I think all those little factors of waking up at four o'clock in the morning and going to the golf club and hitting thousands of balls before the club opens up, cleaning the toilet, taking, you know, coaching and all that sort of stuff for very little money, seven days a week and all that sort of stuff and being driven in that independent way and then a little bit of dad creeping in there going, could we do this better? Yeah. I think all those things sort of came together. I said, well, okay, so this is Nick. He's in, he's selling beds in the furniture industry, driving around his car. He's doing one thing, you know, on the left side of our brain, which is cool. But what about the other side? And so that little dynamic started to spot things and just go, you're doing this in the wrong way. Really? Yeah. So I was challenging everything I was doing. The amount of miles I used to drive, the amount of calls I used to make, all of these things sort of came together. No, there's a better way of doing this. And so there was a little period, a few years, a couple of years maybe, where they just got, we've employed the wrong person. This guy needs to go. He's not. And then suddenly they started to see a shift. You know, the yeah. graph started to shift. Suddenly, the patch, the, the area I was looking at that started to be creating more sales, more depth of relationships, more commitments and everything else than any other area the, in the whole company. Really? So then they started to have to reflect on maybe there is a new way of doing this because they couldn't argue with the numbers. Mm-hmm. And it's a bit like you can't argue, Jenny, with how you introduce me and how you talk about me, which is, but it's not you talking about me. It's talking about you talking about your experience of something. Right? Yeah. And if you listen to somebody who just goes, this changed my life, this did this, this did. amazing, right? So all that happened is there was too many people going, the way Nick approaches this is amazing. So within six years, they just couldn't ignore it. So they just put me at the top of the chin. I love that though, because it is, it does really link back to, you know, work ethic and determination, but also that, as you say, the link to your dad and always knowing that is there a better way and just challenging yourself um, to be better. And before we go on to your last moment, one thing that I really want to discuss, because it was one of the main reasons why I wanted you on the podcast was, and I mentioned it in the introduction as well, you decided to write a letter to Sir Alex Ferguson, um, kind of talking about how you think you can improve the, col- the whole sleep and recovery side of 
the sport. And obviously at the time it was probably like, what the hell is this guy talking about? Um, and that's really like a massive catalyst to kind of where you are today. If you'd not written that letter, if you'd not kind of challenged what you were thinking, but also challenged what he was thinking. Um, I'd love to know kind of what made you initially write to him. I do remember uh, bumping into Sir Alex because uh, when I was working at Slumland as an international sales marketing director, we got asked to sponsor a local football team called Oldham Athletic. I was the guy in charge of the check in those days. So I wrote the check out for all sorts of reasons. It engaged me into the world of football. It engaged me into a little community around the Northwest, which was Oldham Athletic, Berry Football Club, Alex Ferguson, David Beckham, Paul Scholes, the class of 92. Oh, the best. Me in that whole area. And I had no idea what I was doing. But I think I think what it was that, um, you know, the, the guy who employed me at Slumland when I was a golfer and now trying to sell beds was a very driven Scottish guy with lots of heart, uh, but he demanded the best. There was a little bit on there dance challenges and all sorts of stuff. Alex, um, as I bumped into him in various places, he he loved honesty, um, genuine people. It's not necessarily northern people or that sort of stuff. It was just like, have you got an opinion? If you have, give it to me. Right? Don't hide behind stuff. You know, get on with it. Make your little way. And I think that whole little thing at that moment in time was he felt I had something. Nobody knew what it was, but he's going, we do nothing about sleep. Why not? Could we look at this? Could we look at that? Maybe we could. Wow, I'm interested. I'm interested. But I think it's all the whole journey, you know, you call it fatal on that book, but it was just like, he was kind of talking to my dad at the same time. He was going, yeah. you don't do anything about sleep, Alex. You're joking, aren't you? It's a third of your day. It's 30% of your life. You know, nothing? No. Do you do anything about that? No. But he also found, I think, there was, uh, there was no interest in financial benefits. There was no interest in... You know, look at me. It was just, you know, when you look at something like Sir Alex Ferguson's life cycle, for many years he was the boss of Manchester United, failing like mad. Failing like mad. Many, many years. And I think he just smelled something. Well, it's kind of like a similar attitude to you, like... He wants to make things better. He wants to look at different ways to do things. And you probably both connected having that same outlook. Maybe. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah. Maybe all those things joined up. That I, I didn't see him as a, you know, somebody who was that high profile. I just saw him as a person. Yeah, a person who wants to make things I better. I dealt with so many people like that. Yeah, and and again, that's kind of the pure essence of what you do is is you are trying to just make things better for people. And your last sliding doors moment um, was deciding to leave your role um, at Slumberland in your early 40s and set up on your own. Um, what was it that kind of 
triggered you to make this decision? You know, you'd been in this role for such a long time. You said you climbed the ladder. What made you be like, I want to go and do this on my own now? I believed I had a relationship with the subject sleep, like a partner or whatever. Um, I believed that I'd done my, the best I possibly could to try and influence the change. And I wouldn't say that was a, a negative thing because it was really positive. I mean, we created some amazing things that really changed the barriers. But yeah. there was one little thing that was always niggling away at them is why can't we translate the importance of sleep as something that's more practical and achievable? And that was always the thing. I'd created one-sided mattress. I'd innovated all sorts of stuff. I'd created trials. I was a chairman of sleep council. We'd done all sorts of wonderful things. But the bit that sort of niggled me is that in all that period of time, we've never found a way to make a big smile on Jenny's face. (laughs) (laughs) And many other peoples across the world. I mean, how many different languages is your book written in? Um, I've just got a new one through today, actually, um, which is Brazil. So it's just, we've just signed a new contract with the book to be published in Brazil. It will be in Portuguese, but um, uh, we've just... So great. And one in Taiwan, which happened last week. So it's 16 languages and growing. Amazing. But I think that's really, you know, when you boil it down, there's something... About all the achievements and everything, there was something just niggling me that inside there and all of that stuff we've been doing, and something's got to be a little bit more just like you've got to give this to the community. I love that, and I think that you know, as you've said before, you don't know it at the time that you know setting up on your own would lead to everything you have done, but you did kind of follow your gut. Like you knew there was something a bit more that you could do and and you did it. Like think of all the people you've helped. Who's the the person you've worked with that has been your favourite? Like you've worked with so many different people. Who's been your favourite person? It has to be Sir Alex in the early years uh, because there's always, you know, when you talk about fate, you know, my UK office was in Oldham, Manchester, the local football team, you see Manchester United and all that. I think it was anywhere else on the planet, nothing would have happened. Yeah. So I think you have to sort of touch base and go, remember that conversation, Alex? Yeah, yeah. Could have gone nowhere. But there was a... There was a lady who was struggling big time. And we just applied the techniques like you did, read the book and stuff like that, and... It, she writes to me today saying, you literally changed my world. But that's, that's just like all we live for in life is to... Uh, you, know, you can talk about Cristiano Ronaldo, you can talk about David Beckham, you can talk about Chris Foy and Victoria Pendleton winning gold medals, and British Cycling Team Sky, Bradley Wiggins, first British rider on the Tour de France podium. Yeah. You name it, I don't know, all the things I'm doing right now, some great things going on, amazing, amazing. But it was just this one lady. I love that. And she still writes to me today, go, if only I'd known this Mm -hmm. when I was 15 years old. 
that's why I love chatting to you and I love everything that you do because, you know, the fact that you are so in tune with the fact that the people that you help is why you love doing what you do. And it's not about the big names. It's about, you know, me talking to someone or the mother that's written into you. And it's it's so inspirational. And again, it just really does show that, you know, by you having a passion and wanting to make something better, you've managed to help so many people. In the whole world of sort of helping people and that whole stuff, those are the bits, you know, sometimes it's praising yourself because Manchester City created more premiership points than any other club on the planet. Liverpool have done it again and again. Chris Hoy does this, Bradley Williams does that. You know, Anthony Joshua, again. Wherever you want to go, those are great. The bits that really make a difference is it's just everyday people dealing with everyday challenges and just go, you've given me a way through this. Yeah. And Nick, please keep doing what you do because you're brilliant and you help so many people. And as I said before, if you haven't read Nick's book, please go and get it because it will change your life. Um, And I could chat to you for such a long time, but we've now come to the end. So thank you so much for being so open and honest um, and for everything that you do for everybody. My pleasure, Janet. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, Nick. All right. Sleep well. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Sliding Doors. If you've enjoyed our chat and found it inspiring, I would love it if you could rate, review, share and subscribe. Thank you so much. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.